This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Good to be here. Always good to be here. Just to selfishly give you an update on where I'm at. Uh, with all the next stuff. We had an epidural last Tuesday, and I keep telling people that was like almost instantaneous relief. Like it went from being, if if my pain was at 100, it went down to like 10%, and then it slowly started creeping back in. But today's a very good day, Um, probably the best day I've had since the epidural. So we're hoping and praying that this epidural lasts a while, gives some relief, and today I'm feeling good. I'm not on pain pills, so this that's a plus. Not as fun of an episode, but be more <laughs> yeah. accurate. Yeah, Will's trying to provoke insanity whenever I'm on medication. So it doesn't take much, yeah. honestly. So anyway, I appreciate everybody, uh, their prayers, and I'm really grateful for modern medicine. And we have called an audible. We're going to continue in our study of Genesis, jumping into the last of four generations of the patriarchs, so which focuses primarily on two of Jacob's 12 sons that are Joseph, who gets the majority of the ink, and Judah, who gets a minority of the ink, but who is actually going to be the one that carries on the messianic line. And he is quite the scoundrel like yeah. his dad, maybe even worse. I, I think I put him in the, the camp where he is going to be worse than his dad. We'll get to that next week. Before we jump into Genesis chapter 37, which is where we're going to go, I'm going to make a call. Genesis 36 is a it is a lot of names of Esau's line and kings that come from Esau. So I would encourage you to go read chapter 36. Give yourself an exercise on pronouncing some of those names. Uh, a couple of things to update you from, from where we left off last time in Genesis 35 to where we pick up in Genesis 37 is... Rachel's going to die, and Isaac is going to die. And so we're, in the death of Rachel, they, they go back to Bethel. You'll remember Jacob. God comes to Jacob and says, hey, I want you to go back to Bethel. I want, and Jacob's like, yes, we're going to get rid of our idols. We're going to worship you. So they're at Bethel for a while, and finally when they leave there, Rachel is pregnant with son number 12. This is going to be Benjamin. And on the way traveling from Bethel, um, she goes into labor it is a very hard labor. And so in the midst of it, she dies. And because this was so hard, as she lays dying, she calls his name Benoni. And the father overrules, I guess, and says, no, he's going to be Benjamin. And Benoni, um, that means the son of my hardship or the son of, of pain. And, and Benjamin or Jacob changes it to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And so she's buried right at Bethlehem. And the other update comes in verse 22, and it's one of these really disturbing verses that's like, but it just says it and moves on. And it says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So that's Jacob. So you've got a son who's having an affair with your concubine. So again, this family's just dysfunctional. Yeah, that's a a couple tough things there. One, you can't even just keep the name Benoni. Your dying wife wanted that to be your child's name, and you're like, nah. Yeah, but what he's his his thinking is he loves Rachel so much. You got to remember, if there's been one bright side to Jacob through the entirety of the scripture, it's definitely not in how he fathers. It's not in how he treats Leah. Remember, he's given her the short end of the stick constantly. But he was willing to do, you know, he had sacrificial love for Rachel. Remember, he was willing to work seven years, and it was like nothing to get her because he loved her. He always put her head and shoulders above everybody else, and now he's lost her. And so the the two reminders that he has of Rachel are the sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Yeah. And that's now, a better, better look at it. Yeah, he's like, this is, no, he's not going to be the son of pain. This is the son of my right hand. And what you're going to see now from... For the rest of Jacob's life, 
when he's being sanctified into this character that at the end of Genesis is going to be beloved by all of Egypt, he gets there through suffering. And that's kind of like what we know of the remainder of Jacob's life after chapter 35 is he suffers. He's going to suffer the loss of Rachel. So he's got three people in his life that he really loves, and the rest of his entire family is treated like leftovers. He loves Rachel. He loses her. He loves Joseph, and as we see in this week's story, he's going to lose him. And as Genesis comes to a a close, he's going to be in desperate fear of losing Benjamin. So everything that he loves more than life and more than everything else starts being ripped away from him. And the bizarre thing is as that's happening, as he's walking down the road of suffering, Jacob becomes a more godly, likable, honorable figure through suffering. What do you think? Why do you think the Bible gives us that lesson? Because suffering is a fact of life. Suffering's a fact of life, and let's be honest, it makes us it makes us more patient. It makes us more compassionate. It helps us to empathize. It makes us more like our Savior, right? What did uh, maybe it was Spurgeon who said, "I've learned to thank the wave that pushes, makes me kiss the rock of ages." Yeah, that's good. I like that. But all that to say, as we get to Genesis chapter 37, we've already seen that Jacob is big on favoritism. He's got a favorite wife, and he's got favorite kids. And it's going to be what drives the narrative into real tragedy, but God's kind of hidden sovereign blessing in all this is driven by Jacob's foolishness and showing favoritism. And the bizarre thing is, like all of Jacob's mess that was born from his whole life came because his parents played favorites, right? Rebecca liked him and Isaac liked Esau. And then that blew up and caused all of their drama. And so now Jacob's like, hmm, what can I learn from my dad? (laughs) And he goes right back to that because he was not his dad's favorite. So he knows what it's like to not have the father's favor. And yet he runs right into his own family, and he becomes like his father again. Story of Genesis, some would say. It really is. <laughs> generations like, of generations. Humanity does not learn from its mistakes. I, that's one of the stories of Scripture that is ironclad. Like, we just do not seem to learn from our mistakes, at least not for long. <laughs> All right, so let's start in Genesis 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father sojourning. So he, you know, traveling all over uh, the land of promise from Beersheba to Bethel to Shechem all, all through that region in the land of Canaan. And it says, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, a 17 year old in the ancient world is a lot different than a 17 year old today, by the way. So he's pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. And so right out of the gates, you kind of get a feel for Joseph's character. He's bringing bad reports about his brothers. Why do you think he's doing that? I have no idea. I think it's a mixed bag because a lot of people just want to say, well, he's a spoiled brat. Yeah. You know, he's a braggart. He's, you know, he's arrogant or something like that. And I think that's true. We're going to see that for sure in a moment. But there's a lot of bad to report. (laughs) Like, let's just be honest. Like, Joseph has a different spirit about him. He doesn't like all the nonsense. He doesn't like the unrighteousness. You'll see through the rest of the story that he is very faithful to God. He's got a heart that's constantly thinking about the Lord. And even though at this point it's not humble yet, (laughs) he's very concerned about doing the right thing. And he looks at his brothers that are out doing all sorts of things, and he wants no part of it. So he's kind of the tattletale dad. They're out doing all this bad stuff. And, you know, Jacob, who is freshly reformed <laughs> out of doing all the bad stuff, is probably like, okay, yeah, 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 that's that's probably my fault, you know. But Joseph, he wants nothing to do with it. Yeah, and Jacob seems to have this thing where he hears about bad stuff happening and just lets it go. Yeah, I mean, lately. He and Reuben didn't even seem like they had a discussion about him sleeping with his concubine. Yeah, it's like moving on. Or think about Dinah. Like anything that's bad that happens, you don't see Jacob going, oh my goodness, how do I deal with this? It's just like craziness is happening in this family. They are super dysfunctional. And Joseph is like, this shouldn't be happening. (laughs) Like I'm, So he's the one person in the family that seems to be uncomfortable with wickedness and, and disorder and all that kind of stuff. So it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, which is 
that that's absurd. That's good parenting, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. The reality is, is he loves Joseph simply because he is the firstborn son of Rachel. And Rachel, at this point in Jacob's life, Rachel, who was always the prize of his life and who drove his his heart and everything about him, is gone. And now Joseph is like the last attachment that he has with her. And so nobody can compete with Joseph because they're competing with, with a ghost. Yeah, She's gone. You know, this was the love of his life. And so he loves Joseph more than any other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. If I came and I gave you a shirt that had a lot of colors on it, like you wouldn't be going around being like, look at me. Yeah. <laughs> Sam gave me a shirt. Look how many colors. <laughs> like we don't think about that, but in the ancient world, if we understood what it took to create the pigments and dyes that are associated with those colors, it means this is an outrageously expensive coat. So, like, you go to the ancient world, even in, up to Roman times, which is more than a thousand years later, like, there's a reason why royalty wore purple. Because in order to get, like, one gram of purple dye... You had to kill a thousand different little seashell-looking things and e- extract the dye out of them. Okay, it was a tremendously complex, very very expensive process. So Jacob not only has that, like he's got multi colors, lots and lots and lots of wealth, and has gone into this. And what it says is, you're set apart. You're you're you've got money. You're the favored one. And one of the other things that we don't know about culture that makes this a big deal is when you were a king in the ancient world when you would conquer your enemy you would take their robe and you would cut a portion out of the robe and you would stitch it onto your own Mm. and so the idea was if you had a the train of your robe like it talks about in isaiah 6 with god who the train of his robe fills the temple well the idea behind that was he's conquered lots of people he is the king of kings he's he, he rules over all the earth because he's got all these different patches that have made his robe so long. But with that come a lot of different colors. Hmm. And so the idea of bearing a lot of colors meant that you're a ruler. You've conquered. When, when people during this particular time, you go into Egypt and you look at their wall paintings and there's a group called the Hyksos that were foreigners that came into Egypt. And in all of the art paintings, when you look at their kings, they're wearing multicolored robes. And so when Jacob gives the coat of many colors to Joseph, it's saying, you are going to reign. Hmm. You are set apart. You are the favorite. You are going to be the one who leads this family into the future. Okay, so it's even more than just everyone would have understood what this coat was. It's Mm -hmm. not just like, hey, dad got our brother. He stands out because it's multicolored. But it means like, no, this is more than just like... He's showing his favoritism. Yeah, it's, okay. it's not like Joseph got more Christmas presents under the tree. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it, it is that, but way but much more than that. It's saying it's a bigger claim than even just like, oh, he's nice. Dad likes him more, so he got a better gift. Yep. Okay. Yep, my favor is on you. And so this is, at this point is where we stop, because I want you to stop and I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be the other brothers, okay, especially the older 10. Every single time, we've talked about this before, every single time that God's favor falls upon one of the sons, what happens to all the other sons? So the favor falls upon Isaac, well, what happens to Ishmael then? And the other six sons that are born to Abraham? They get scattered. They get scattered. They're all dismissed out of the promised land, and it all goes to Isaac. Hmm. Then you look at Jacob and Esau, and the favor falls to Jacob. Well, what happens to Esau? He had to find his own way. Yeah, you go find your own land. So he has to go found a whole nation outside the promised land known as Edom. And so if you're one of the 10 sons and you've been looking at how this works in the previous two generations, right? Okay, Isaac got it and everyone else had to go. Jacob got it. Everyone else had to go. It seems like Joseph got it. So what does that mean for us? Yeah, well, I never thought of it like that. Like, yeah, because yeah, our favoritism in modern times... Yeah, it's nice to have, but I'm not like banking. Like you're not banking your whole life on that. Yeah. Whereas in this regard, favoritism is like you're going to get it all. You're right. And a lot 
is on the line with all. Yeah. And so why build up? Why build up this territory? Why build up these flocks when eventually it's, I'm going to be sent away anyway. It's going to go to your younger brother. Yeah. It's all his anyway. So why, why bother taking it seriously? So not only are they trained up under Jacob, who has been, you know, flirting with paganism and has all the foreign gods that he's got to get rid of. Like they're all a mess morally. They're all a mess spiritually. The family dynamics are atrocious. Jacob does nothing to assure them that they're safe in his love and protection and everything else. You know, the only the only thing that you hear out of Jacob until the very end of the story is just disappointment with him. And they give lots of reasons to be disappointed with him. I mean, you got the firstborn son Reuben who's sleeping with your concubine. You got Levi and Simeon that right prior to this just committed a genocide. Things are not looking good it's for your family. Crew. Like it, if you're a dad who is looking to be disappointed with your kids, they're giving you lots of material, but you haven't exactly been the best witness either, the best role model. Yeah, and that's even more infuriating for them having Joseph be a tattletale. Because in the end, he's kind of tattling for himself almost. Like you said, if they're goofing off with the land or they're not doing whatever they're supposed to do, Joseph is kind of like the overlord that has no power. So he has to run to his dad and be like, hey, they're messing with my future now, dad. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, so yeah, I that would be see really the that, anger. Oof. Yeah, for real. I'm not condoning what's going to happen next, okay? so Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have four different kids, and they are all like... Do you have a favorite? I won't tell them. I'm just kidding. Yeah, there's, I have, if you gave me a category... <laughs> Okay. Which, which is your favorite in this category? I could say that they d- excel differently. If you were to ask me, do I have a favorite in terms of the amount I love them? I, like, that just feels impossible. Yeah. Like, I'd lay down in front of a train for all of and them. And they're all at different... St- your kids are pretty spread out, so they're at much different stages of life, and some are just more infuriating than others. Yeah. So it's a tough to be, like, in this moment in time. Yeah. I mean, if you were to ask me who's my favorite snuggler, it's not my six foot three, yeah. <laughs> 180-pound ninth grader. But there's there's different ones like there's there's some who conversations about the Lord are deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some where if I'm talking about sports, it's more fun. You know, they think they have all of them have their strengths, but there's no favorites in the way that literally says he loved him more than all his brothers. And and this is just terrible parenting. If you do have a son who's walking around saying, Oh, I'm better than everyone else, as a parent, what's your job? Uh, humble them a little bit. You need to humble them, right? You need to like wreck them. And so here you've got Joseph being like, dad, they're not doing the right thing. And Jacob's like, I'm going to reward this. Yeah. You're, you really are better than them. Here's a coat Let to me prove it. show them that I love you <laughs> yeah. more. So it's, Jacob's pouring gasoline on Joseph's dysfunction. And it's going to be, uh, oddly enough, it's going to be the cruelty of the brothers ultimately that saves Joseph from himself, not his own dad. It's going to be that that it takes to humble him. And this coat he would have worn every day. It's not like this is just a special event coat, right? Yeah, no. You so don't, every you day don't when have... you wake up and look at your younger brother, you're reminded how much dad loves him and not me. Yeah, it's not like they they don't have hampers. Yeah. You know, they're not like getting not a rid huge of, closet. Yeah. Right. And it takes so long to create a garment. Like that's what you're wearing. And I mean, on wash day, you might be in your undergarment, but that's that's the coat that you are wearing. And so it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. And so what's interesting is, who's, whose actions are they mad at? Listen to this. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Jacob, ironically, the one who's going to be the most grieved about this is the one who is setting his son up. By saying, I love you more than everyone, it makes them hate Joseph for something Jacob is doing. Am I making sense? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. All right, cool. So now it says, now Joseph had a dream. And this is going to be, this is going to be for the rest of the narrative, we're going to have three different sets of dreams. And every time there's two dreams. So you're going to have Joseph's dreams right at the beginning of it. Then you're going to have the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer that come as, you know, two separate dreams. And then you have Pharaoh ultimately, who's going to have two dreams. And what he'll say later when he's interpreting dreams is that the reason why God gives dreams as tandems is to verify that it's legit. And so when, when Joseph gets the two dreams, there's something about that culture, something that God's revealed to him that says, 
when things come in pairs, it validates it from God. So if I have a weird dream Just a I, and I don't know what to make of it, you know, it seems like this might be it. But then if God verifies that by giving the same essential, you know, the meaning of the dream in another way, then there's something to that. And as a pastor, like, I honestly don't know what to do with people who come to me and said, I have a dream. Because, you know, most of the time it's like, you know, did you eat something weird? <laughs> you yeah. know, do, but too much melatonin. Something, you know, because dreams are so crazy. And yet the Bible, you see multiple times, like when somebody has a dream, it's rare that the people of God or the prophet of God looks at them and says, it's just a dream. Yeah. You know, there's always something to it. So it does make you wonder when you have dreams that stand out and are not just kooky dreams, but they're, they're something that, you know, stirs your spirit. Maybe there is something to that dream. Could be. So anyway, Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And shucker. <laughs> so here you go. You've got proud Joseph who's made even more proud by the gift from the father who's hated even more when the father is announcing that he loves Joseph more than all of them. And now Joseph has a dream and it's just like you get the idea that their hatred is being amplified as the, the higher Joseph pumps himself up, the more they hate him. And so he's got a dream. And well, what is the dream? He said, he said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Nice. Yeah, like, what are you doing? And his brother said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. A lot of people, even into the early church, wondered, like, is this dream fulfilled in the life of Joseph? Is this dream meant to be fulfilled in Christ or both? You have any thoughts? I mean, it's definitely fulfilled in the life of Joseph, right? Well, this one for sure. Yeah. You know, when the brothers come to Egypt later on, they do bow down before him and this dream is fulfilled. But what's interesting about this is the language that he's using. We're binding sheaves in a field. Well, what is, what is the sheaf? It is, it is a stalk of grain. And what's happened to the stalk of grain? It's been cut down. And so the language that he's using here is you have a, a, a living thing that is cut down in its life. And so it looks defeated. It looks dead. It looks like it has no future. And then all of a sudden, this dead grain arises. And that word is, is language of resurrection. Arose and stood upright, tall. And behold, all your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Mine was cut down, which means it should be dying lifeless, but it arose. And when it arose, all of you guys then arose and bowed down, <laughs> you know? So it's like resurrection spread in the dream. You were spared from death when I arose from death, but then you recognized your need to bow down. Hmm. That's what's going on. So it's, it's, it's death and resurrection. It's, it's submission here. And one of the things that, that's the, the clear parallel is this, this dream is also fulfilled in the life of Jesus. When you get to Philippians chapter 2, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so you've got this prophecy that's, that's related to Jesus that everyone's going to bow to him. The one who was cut down and raised up, everyone else on that day is going to come up, right? And they're going to bow. They're going to bow. So all, all the ones cut down, dead, looking, whatever, are going to bow. So verse 9, Joseph sees his brothers are just hating him even more. And like there's, there's no concern. He doesn't learn from this, which, which means either he's stupid, which we know he's not, or what's, what's the only other option I can think of? He's proud. He doesn't care. Yeah. Okay, hate me. I'm still better than you, which is not godly at all. No. Like, I don't think Joseph's that likable in the, in the first chapter. No. As the story unfolds, he becomes more likable. Well, you have to kind of like him once he, you know. Yeah, he's suffering. Sold. Yeah, why, why is it it's that hard to be suffering? mean about the guy that gets sold. <laughs> but anyway, in verse 9, you see he dreams another dream. What's the benefit of telling all of them? I don't even, I don't even know. But anyway. Yeah, it seems like he's lording it over them. Completely. Like, 
you know you guys are going to be booted. Look at this coat. <laughs> you know, I had another dream, guys. You want to hear? <laughs> I mean, for real. And so he comes and says, Behold, I dreamed another dream. Gather round. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And so now this is where church fathers, theologians, they go, hold on a minute, something doesn't fit here. Because the way that we typically interpret this is, I mean, you can go one of two directions. If, if you lived in the brother's shoes at that time, you're thinking, okay, there's one of two interpretations going on here. They're thinking, okay, you've, you've called out the number 11 again, so it's family. Yeah. So if, if it's the 11 stars that are coming to bow down to, to your star or whatever you are in this dream, what are the sun and the moon? Yeah. That's mom and dad, right? I mean, wouldn't it have to be? so? But the problem is... Mom's dead. Mom's dead. Hmm. So how in the world are the sun and the moon and all the stars going to bow down? Are you claiming, Joseph, that she's going to be raised from the dead to come bow down to you? How, how does this get fulfilled? And then, so then the other option of this is, in the ancient world, all the pagan cultures you know, worshipped the sun and the moon. Okay. The, but it's saying the stuff that the world worships is going to serve me. Hmm. So is all of nature going to bow? Because that you could see like that actually, ironically, does get fulfilled in Joseph's life. You see nature and storms and weather and the harvests and everything else bow to his will. And it's actually what makes him the savior of the world at the time through famine is he's, they're serving the will that he's interpreted, the will hmm. of God. Yeah. But he looks like he is master over all this stuff. And so is that the right interpretation of the dream? I'm skeptical of that. Why bother with the 11? It seems like he's kind of stuck on the family element here. I mean, I'm going to take it as the family one because that's how they took it. And it continues in verse 10. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his fathers rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother? So he's referring to a woman in his life that is his mother. I think you're right. So anyway, the brothers, again, were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. It doesn't hit us with the astonishment that they would have had in the ancient world, in a world of patriarchy and, and primogeniture and all that kind of stuff, to say that the father is going to come and bow down to the son. And it's like, I think Jacob at this point is like, I've created a monster. Like, yeah. you know, I've, I've helped him to see that everybody else is going to bow down to him, that, it, that everything is, you know, at his disposal, that he is the one. And now all of a sudden he's saying that even I am going to have to bow down to him. And in a patriarchal culture of the, of the ancient world, that would have been like, you put your son to death for that kind of talk back in the ancient world. Yeah. And here's Joseph doing it. And Jacob's like, whoa, 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 watch your tongue, watch your tongue. But huh. he's like. Uh, something to keep in mind here. And sure enough, it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I guess our modern world, I've never thought of it like that. Because even our, kind of our modern parenting scheme in the end is eventually you kind of, once you're in your prime of your life, your parents are older, they kind of do become in a weird subservient way in the long run, mm -hmm. where that's more normal to us. Yeah. Back in, the, back in the ancient world, the older you got, the more revered you were. Huh. You know, the, they didn't have the, well, you know, they're starting to lose their senses. Let's put them out to pasture. Like, no, yeah. the older you got, the more revered you got. Like, one of the things that's interesting that we're going to find out, I don't know if we'll ever get to it or repeat it again, but um, in Egypt, and you can read this, there's like 25 different scripts of Egyptian sages that talk about the age of 110 years old being the ideal age of Egypt, like divine favors on you if you live to 110. I don't know why they came up with these things, but they did. And Joseph will live to be 110 years old. He dies at 110. And so when he does, everybody's going to be like, clearly that man was divinely favored. The older you got, the more revered you were, not less. It wasn't like, okay, now we have to take care of them. Yeah. You know, so they're lesser than. Is that just a difference with our bodies now? What do you mean? Like that, I mean, when when you get older, you start to lose some faculties, you know, like, mm -hmm. did they not have that happen? Oh, no, sure they did. Okay. Yeah, for, for absolutely. All right, so we jump to verse four. The first verses are showing you that Joseph at every turn is just getting more and more arrogant. 
You know, I'm going to be the, even if it's all true, I, you know, you don't lord it over people. And so verse 12, it shifts and it says, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And stop for a moment. What's going on in Shechem right now? I don't know. Not a lot because they were all murdered. Oh, shoot. Forgot. (laughs) Right. So the only people that that are in Shechem are you know, Jacob's family and maybe if he allowed some of the widows and orphans to go back home. Oh, so they're at the place they kind of took over. Because, that's right. Oh, that's even darker. So, right. So now the brothers leave and they go to Shechem, which is a place where they slaughtered everybody, presumably with the flocks that they stole from the people at Shechem. And it says, Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'm going to send you to them. You know, because... They're familiar with all the the bad things to do at Shechem. You know, they were there worshiping pagan gods. They know the surrounding villages and the terrains and all the places to go and get in trouble. Come, I will send you to them, Joseph. And so here you have 17-year-old Joseph, and dad is like, okay, you are gonna, you're going to go out on your own a good distance from where we live. Uh, it's going to be a full-day trip. You're going to be outside of my ability to take care of you if something goes wrong. But you're going to go to Shechem to check on your brothers. So he goes from Bethel to Shechem. I feel like I I figured out how far of a trip that was. Yeah, I was going to ask how far it is because it seems like they're coming to and fro pretty easily. Google says 31 miles, 50 kilometers. So 31 miles. What's 31 miles? Fort Lauderdale to West Palm or something like that? Most people walk four miles per hour. Yeah. Joseph's traveling on his own. He's so a young buck. He could seventeen-year-old Joseph. Day. Yeah, he could make it in a day. Yeah, easily, like a business day. Yeah, eight nine hours, ten if he makes some stops. Yeah. So Israel said to Joseph, "Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come now, I'll send you to them. Go now and see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word." So he's inviting his son to bring back another bad report he's to a make spy. Them- hate even it's more. a family spy yeah this is just stupid parenting it's like jacob like you're you are setting him up to be more and more hated and like do you expect your boys are doing good things at the city they just <laughs> yeah. mass murdered everybody in? i want you yeah i want you to be on your best behavior at the place where you just committed the genocide yeah <laughs> like come on obviously they left your town to do things that yeah. they don't they don't want you to see or know about so yeah. just silence and it might be because that the flock that they took from the Shechemites that were killed, because they did inherit all their animals. Maybe there's pasture land up there that's helpful. So who knows? So it says he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. You can imagine Joseph's wandering all around through the pasture lands looking for, for them. He's there. It's like, okay, I, I can't find him anywhere. So thankfully, this guy that God just so happens to appoint to be there. You ever come across verses like this and think, if this guy's not there, Joseph, none of this happens. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, I never thought about that. Totally God. I take it for granted. This guy like shows up, makes you wonder if God like sent an angel. I mean, we just talked about how all the men were murdered there. True. So who's this dude? Right. Something about that. Uh huh. But this guy's coming out of nowhere. And for some reason he has information. (laughs) <laughs> right like, like oh, i know your brothers yeah they told me they were going to dothan so but anyway this guy shows up and he just so happens to know where to go and it's i think this is one of those things that god sovereignty just has him there that's an angel yeah and he comes to joseph and says what are you seeking uh like who does this and he's like well i'm looking i'm looking for my brothers tell me please where are they pasturing the flock and the man said oh they've gone away for i heard them say let us go to dothan like Anybody comes up to me when I'm, I don't even like workers coming up to me in like Target when I look confused. <laughs> so this would have been like, what do you mean? Yeah, get away from me. Yeah. And you're, you're a shepherd. You're on hills. How are you overhearing them say stuff? Like, you're like, he's got good ears. You've got your flock three hills away. <laughs> you know, what are, what are you doing here? So anyway, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And I don't know why they go to Dothan. I don't know what exactly is in Dothan, um, but they decided to go there probably for no good reason. So Joseph's tracking, he's on his way to Dothan and they look and they see him from afar. (laughs) And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Like that's some deep hatred. Yeah. But you got to think 
Jacob at this point has had kind of a conversion moment where he says, put away the gods. You know, we're going back to Bethel. God's been good to me. And you get the sense that Jacob is finally starting to wrestle with his own depravity and try at least to be sanctified. Their first instinct when they see him and they know that there's not going to be a consequence because dad's not here. In other words, they, they have no conscience before God. It's just, hey, dad's not here. We can finally get away with it. First instinct, let's kill him. So let that sink in. This is not their first time they've talked about it as a group. Yeah. It seems like, hey, guys, we ever get the chance. But for some of them, it's not the first time conspiring to kill people. That's true. Their blood is on their hands already. So again, like, and we're not saying this just to focus on the darkness. This isn't, we're, we're doing the opposite of cancel culture. What we're showing you is that God is very much not into cancel culture. <laughs> you know, he looks at people that are desperately flawed and he's not done with them. Mm. He's gracious. He, he knows their backstory. He knows their wickedness. He knows that they're going to be wicked again. And he's not giving up on them. So, so hang on to that. But their first instinct is, let's kill him. And so they said to one another, oh, here comes that dreamer. Yeah, what a line, though. <laughs> Isn't it? Like that? It's, you know, it really rounds like, out the plot. Sarcastic yeah. kind of humor. Here comes the dreamer. Which, like, I could have been on board with them being like, oh, here comes the dreamer. I think I could have laughed at that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good joke. But, but they're like, okay, now, now let's kill it, him. Yeah, it switches pretty yeah. quickly. Whoa, not as fun. I even felt bad laughing. I was still laughing about Dreamer when you read that. I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) This escalated quickly. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. Man, if there was some humility to Joseph, because I doubt God gave him that dream, was like, hey, go tell your brothers about the dream. Man, if he just didn't tell them the dreams, it seems like they're anger would have been muted a little more for sure it seems like that's the issue they have with him right now yeah, for the sure. i mean everything where it says they hated him all the more they hated him all the more it's, it's when joseph or jacob is dressing him up or you know bad reports and all this stuff every time that their hatred grows it's being provoked and stoked mm. by their stupidity you know it doesn't excuse what they're going to do but it's aggravated by their stupidity. And you know, if your brothers wiped out a whole city, yeah, I mean, you should tiptoe around those two for for your whole <laughs> life. Like you would, I would be if I knew two guys who murdered a whole city. I would make sure they are happy with me all the time. You, don't you wonder? Like, I think Joseph has to be thinking, "Dad is my safety. They would never dream of hurting me." But only because of Dad. Like yeah. you can't, you're not banking on the moral character of your brothers. You know, they hate you. I mean, at a minimum, you might be thinking they're going to beat the snot out of me, but they know I'm going to go home and talk to dad and then they're in deep and they would never do that to dad. I mean, even in all their wickedness, you're going to see at the end of this chapter, they still tiptoe around dad. They won't tell dad what happened. They, they play like they're good around dad. And that's Joseph's only hope is that they're doing this just for external reasons. You know, their, their righteousness or their goodness is only external and what can be compelled. There's nothing internal that's good about the brothers at this point. Yeah, and they have to go to that extreme, just like you were saying, because the worst thing for them, they could, if Joseph goes home with a scratch, they, yeah. who knows what Jacob would do to them. So they're like, we got to go full extreme here, mm-hmm. which is wild yeah. take for brothers. <laughs> but so they not only, as we're going to see, kill them or fake his death, send him away where he can't come back. But then they keep this secret for 20 plus years from a dad who's mourning the loss of his favorite son, devastated by this, and not one of them cracks. This is the group we're dealing with here, rough group. And so again, like taking all the the veneer off of the Sunday school lessons about the 12 tribes of Israel, there's a big need for redemption here. But when Reuben heard it, so now remember Reuben is the firstborn son who slept with the father's concubine, right? Lots of good judgments by Reuben these days. (laughs) So so Reuben, you're like, this is the voice of reason? So they're like, okay, let's kill him and throw his body in a pit. And Reuben is like, whoa, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So he's like the voice who's like, you know, don't kill him, don't kill him, don't kill him. Why do you think Reuben doesn't want Joseph to be killed? 
Why did, why does he step in? You've got, you know, the, the nine other brothers that are like, yeah, kill him. And Reuben's going, whoa, 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 whoa. As the firstborn and the one with authority out here. No, do not put a hand on him. Put him in the pit, but do not kill him. What do you think? What do you think his reasoning is? I don't know. But it says when it, the verse continues that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So is Reuben trying to get back in with his dad? Completely. Okay. That's, that's my guess. Is that Reuben... Like he knows the concubine was a mess up. Yeah, it's a big mess up. But there's still the hope that as the firstborn son, he's probably the next choice, logical, after Joseph. Like Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, but hey, I'm, I'm the firstborn of Leah, your other wife, non-concubine lady. Yeah, so he's like, I'm not going to get the whole thing, but I could get a bigger chunk. If- yeah. Or like, let's say, let's say something goes south with Joseph. You know, dad just got upset with Joseph for being too arrogant in the dream. Maybe, maybe I could get my, my foot back in the door. And so Reuben, and I, I don't think it's for righteous motives here. I don't think he's like, oh no, not my brother, Joseph. Remember he hates him too. He's scheming to, to save his life, but you know, God uses all of this and ordains all of this wickedness for good ultimately. So he says, don't lay a hand on him that he might, as he was hoping to rescue him out of their hand and restore him to the father so that he could be the hero Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. It's just empty, cracked rock. It's a cistern, which is just a big hole in the ground where you'd store water, but it's cracked and it can't hold water. And so all of these details are starting to pile up in this chapter to point you toward, it's, it's a foreshadowing of a far greater figure who is the father's favorite son, who is clothed with glory and majesty, who is sent to the far country to check on wicked brothers, right? And when he shows up, those wicked brothers, you know, one of the 12 are going to conspire against him and they're going to throw him into the pit and it these will just compound as the story of joseph goes on but it's getting you to realize that joseph in his suffering though he was once arrogant as being torn down and humbled and as he's being humbled and made more righteous he begins to look a lot like jesus so it says then they sat down to eat so the brothers down in the pit screaming you know which just shows you how callous there because all of us like humanity wide if you feel guilty about something the first thing you're running to is not food <laughs> like most people when they do something yeah. wrong like the last thing Stirring. they want to do is eat because yeah, you're stomach's just upset. gross yeah but these guys are like just another day so the, here's the other thing yeah if you you've been to israel right i have you've been to a couple of spots where they have ancient cisterns mm-hmm. what jumps out like if i threw you into a cistern what's the first thing that comes to your mind i would be hurt it's, they're big yeah like i wouldn't be like if you literally toss me into a cistern, chances are I could have died. <laughs> like they're deep. So we went into the cistern at Megiddo. How how far would you say the fall would be into that cistern? What's your guess? Did I go to this cistern? Yeah, Megiddo. We went a lot of places. Which, just... which cistern? You name a cistern. Which, how how deep? I don't know. A yeah. hundred feet? A hundred feet. That's more than I would guess. You could be right. Oh, you're right. What's up? It's actually more than that. 119 so, feet. That's crazy. So, th- I mean, that might be a bigger, <laughs> that might be a bigger cistern than what we're talking about. But for instance, an ancient cistern at Megiddo, 36 meters deep, 119 feet. There's 180 steps on the exterior of that thing to get down to the base of the cistern. So when it says they throw him into a cistern. I don't know that it's a hundred feet, but they're deep. They're, you know, supposed to hold the water for an entire village. It's deep. So he's down there like, and probably not feeling too good from the fall, but I'm just, just trying to add color to this. So you imagine it's not like they put him in a, in a little hole. Yeah, they didn't dig a hole and toss him in there. Nah, man, this he's deep. He's real deep. And so it says they take his coat, all the coat of many colors, they throw him into the pit, and then they sit down to eat. And looking up, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. There's a lot of symbolism there. 
So number one, it's a caravan of Ishmaelites. What does that mean? Well, who's Ishmael? It is, it is the brother that's kind of the nomad who's out in the desert, whose hand is against everybody. He's, he's kind of seen as the cursed son of Abraham who leaves the faith. So, so this is the, the part of the family of Abraham that is broken off and, and, in a sense, out of the covenant. And these are the merchants, right? So it's like the, the people trading there. And they're coming from Gilead, which is where you get you know some of the greatest balms of the ancient world, medicines, and they've harvested a lot of stuff. And so they've got, now don't miss this, it's gum, balm, and myrrh. What is all that stuff? Do you know? Embalming. It's for embalming. That's absolutely right. Like this is, this is a death industry. So they've got their camels loaded up with gum, balm, and myrrh. Jesus, when he's crucified, he comes down from the cross. It's 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, right, that his body's going to be wrapped in. Balm is used for embalming. Like there's massive death industry supplies with this caravan, and they're going down, don't miss that, to Egypt, which what is Egypt? We've talked about this before. Land of death. It's the land of death. Every, when you think of Egypt, everything that you can associate with ancient Egypt is pointing you to death. It's pyramids. It's the book of the dead. It's the desert. It's, well, what are pyramids? They're big tombs. It's Morgan describes even modern Egypt as a place she would never like to go back to. So Yeah, it's desert. It's lifeless. Like Anyway, the Bible is always associating Egypt with death. And so get this. Here you have the cursed line out of Abraham, the non-covenant line, the Ishmaelites that are carrying all the industry of death items. They're going down to Egypt, which is a place that's infatuated with death, whose king is marked by the serpent. You know, you have all the pictures of death going on down there. And it's like, I'm going to sell Joseph to go down there, right? So don't miss that. It's, it's very much intentional. And so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Well, what a noble guy, <laughs> you know. Let's, let's not hit him or hurt him because he's our brother, but let's sell him to these Ishmaelites and take him down to Egypt where we will never hear from him again. And so they drew Joseph up lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. He's got to be knocked out at this point, right? I've never thought about this and this could all be hearsay. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm, I've never, because Joseph has to be like, just, just went willingly. They just hand him over and he's like, cool. Oh, I'm sure he's, he was bound. See, if you go to Psalm one Oh five, it talks about when Joseph was sold as a slave. And it says that, they bruised his feet with shackles and his neck was put in irons. And so when he goes, he, yeah, he's definitely not going willingly, but he is shackled. So these people that are on their way and in the industry of death just so happen they to have ready some shackles. For this. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got slaves that they're ready to take down to Egypt. So, and, and one of the fascinating things here that I remember when I was in seminary and first learning this, when, and it was like, this is almost so on the nose, it's amazing. But Judah, which is the Hebrew name, when it's translated into the Greek, becomes Judas, sells his righteous brother for silver to be escorted by Gentiles to the land of death. You know, pieces of silver. So all of this is... is you know, this is happening 1800 plus years before Jesus. And all of it is pointing you toward him. It's got, God is writing in some sense, almost prophecy through the life of Joseph and his narrative. that's pointing you to the Jesus to come. It says when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy's gone. And I, where shall I go? Notice who his concern is about himself. Yeah. So he's very much his father's son again, right? The boy's gone. Now what's going to happen to me? You know, he's not concerned. Like we, you know, get on your camels. We're chasing after him. Let's go get him. Let's rescue him. Like, let's go. No, it's what's going to happen to me now. And so then they scheme and got to, right. They're left with, that's the only option when you're, when you're not afraid of God, 
and you're only afraid for what you're going to gain or lose in this world, this is the logical next step. He says, they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, uh, this we found, uh, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. Like they're just slimy. not even your brothers. Yeah. Like, is it your son's robe? Yeah, that's a good point. Never even like, noticed There's still that. just no care or concern. Even they're probably trying to distance themselves at this point. Yeah, that's really tragic. Yeah, see if this is your son's robe or not. Like, just, They're just gross in all this. Like, so I want you to imagine, like, even if you didn't like your dad, you know, if you had a hard relationship with him, imagine standing before, if you, you've ever seen, you know, I, I went to a, an honor flight parade where, you know, veterans are getting back from, okay. from D.C. and they're being honored in the airport and everybody's waving flags and just celebrating them. It's one of the most amazing things. And one of the most touching moments at, during this whole thing is when they brought a flight attendant out and it was a gold star mom who had lost her son. And she was so overwhelmed by the show of support and love from this, you know, huge crowd and all the music that was playing that one of the other veterans just grabbed hold of her and she just broke down sobbing. And it was, you know, it was one of those moments where everybody who was watching felt emotional in the moment. But you just you can just look and see the heartbreak of mm. someone who's lost a child. Yeah. And I don't know that pain personally, but I can see the depth of pain when this woman just melted onto this veteran's shoulder. And I don't even know this woman, but there was a part of me that was like, man, I wish I could take away that pain for you. This looks devastating. And here you have son after son after son who's going, hey, is, is this your favored son's robe? And Jacob is absolutely distraught and not one of them cracks. It's that's the that's probably of all the things that happen in this chapter. That one is because they sit in it. You know, you make a bad decision, you sell your brother. That one is like a moment, you know, in the heat of the moment, you do something stupid. But this is they not only do this in the moment, but then they look at their dad in the eye every day for years as he's wrestling with this grief, weeping, wailing, and they're all rock solid, cold. And they just watch their dad grieve. And so when they give him this robe that's covered in blood and what they mean to say is it's, it's, it's been deva- he's been devoured by an animal. Yeah, because they don't really even say that to their father. He just... Yeah, of course, you piece it together. It. Yeah. But in reality, yeah, he was devoured by animals. You know, mm. the worst of their character. They're, I mean, they're very animalistic in all this. There's, there's no concern that, you know, Joseph is in the image of God or, or that he is, you know, the, the son of their father. But Jacob sees it and he goes, oh, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And so Jacob tore his garments. He put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters, this is one of the grosser parts, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Why? Are they, are they like, oh, poor dad. Like, how could they comfort him? That's true. If they wanted to comfort him, you know what they would say? If your son's alive, let's go get him. Exactly. We can buy him back. Mm -hmm. So they come near him to comfort him, and it's all just fake. There's there's no real love. So what are they doing? They're positioning. Mm. Mm. I, I want dad to think that I'm the good one so that I can be in the good graces, and maybe I can become the favorite. Maybe I can get the inheritance. Maybe I can get the blessing. But he refused to be comforted. And at this point, you, you already see he does, he's never thought well of them. He's never loved these kids very well. But now, like, all trust is just destroyed at the, he, from this point even. He refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, that's the grave, to my son, Morning. What that means is I'm never going to stop until the moment that I die. I'm going to be in utter grief. Okay. Good talk, dad. You know, just gross. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites or the Ishmaelites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Do you think Jacob had any inkling? Do you think he really believed him? Um, No. 
I don't, I don't think J- I think Jacob probably at this moment is in such shock and grief that he's not sure what to make of it. Mm. But I, I want you to imagine like as you, as the wheels start turning and you're thinking, okay, you're 31 miles away. You're telling me that you just so happened to walk along the same route and you just so happened to see this garment before anybody else could take it. You don't know what happened. You just happened in a 31 mile radius to happen across, like all of a sudden the pictures start, you know that they hated him. You know that they conspired against him. So later on, when, when they want to take Benjamin, he lays down the blame and says, you've already taken one son from me. And that was, you know, the accusation actually kind of is implied later. And now you want, and, and you, now you want to take another. And it's like, Ooh, all right. So there is some suspicion in him. He Jacob knows his family's lost. He knows that they're deeply lost. The Bible in this story invites you to compare this with the life of Christ, right? And so then the question becomes like when you see that level of devastation in Jacob, I wonder like how can God relate to that? When when because guess who we are in the story of the gospel? Well, we're not the father, and we're not the Joseph that's falsely accused and mistreated. We're the brothers. Hmm. Like, we're the ones that have blood on our hands. And yet, like, the father doesn't look at us and say, hey, you're responsible for my son's crucifixion. I don't trust you. I want you away from me. And this weird inverted picture, our father is the one along with his son, who are of one mind, who say, we love the lost so much that I'm willing to be sold. I'm willing to go down to the land of death. I'm willing to be betrayed. And the father's saying, I'm willing to allow my son to be seemingly dead and lost for the sake of gaining the wicked ones. And, you know, there's this, there's a great thing in, in the scriptures when it gets to heaven and, and it's describing Jesus as he is in Revelation chapter 19 verse 13 that when Jesus emerges at the gates of heaven and they open up it says that he is standing there dressed in a robe dipped in blood that's in Revelation 19:13. now that, that makes no sense from anywhere in the gospels you can read through the gospels you won't find like where it says oh his robe was dipped in blood the only time that you find a robe being dipped in blood is here. It's in the story of Joseph. And yet when it gets to heaven, it wants you to know that when you see Jesus standing at the gates of heaven, he has a robe that's dipped in blood. And what does that, what does that mean? Well, it's clearly a reference to Joseph, but it's showing you that even though he was betrayed and he was stripped of his robe and sold for silver, that he was ultimately restored to the father. And like Joseph Jesus knows the pain of being betrayed by his brothers and alienated from his father, but he prevailed. And now he once again wears the robe of the father's blessing in heaven. And it's still always forever dipped, dripped it, forever dripped it, forever dripped. Good grief. You having a stroke? I think I Do might I need be. to call an ambulance. <laughs> forever dipped in blood so that when we're in heaven, it's not to shame us, but it's to show the price hmm. and the depths of our forgiveness and his mercy. Because like I said, it, the stories are so similar, but we have a Joseph who gladly ordained that this would be his fate so that he could purchase us. Stunning. Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, biblically, the similarities are astounding and wonderful, but the real is kind of the differences is the beautiful parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus is going to be falsely accused, but he chooses that path. Yeah, Joseph didn't choose this. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Jesus is so righteous and so wonderful that when he looks at his wicked brothers and sees how lost we are, he chooses the path, mm. knowing that it's the only way that we could ever be redeemed. The gospel's amazing. Yeah. And God in his sovereignty is going to use all these circumstances to begin patching this family back together, which becomes really pretty wonderful. So that's where we leave off this week in Genesis chapter 37. Join us next week as we get into Genesis 38. And for all of the 
the upward, right, righteous moving side of Joseph that we see when it's countered against Judah, who seems to be the most despicable of the brothers, the one who sold him for silver, you get an idea of just how depraved elements of this family are. But the redemption story is all the more beautiful because of it. So join us next week on the Out of Water podcast. Have a blessed week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.